Hello, hello, hello. This is Square One from History Link. I'm your host, Rosette Royale. History begins somewhere, and in Seattle, many historic moments in LGBTQ history began in Pioneer Square. As early as the 1930s, LGBTQ folks came to this neighborhood to form community, make friends, meet lovers, care for those who are sick, and fight for their rights. But now, many of those places are vanishing before our eyes. On square one, hear from people who live this history firsthand and those who want to keep this history alive. Join us as we explore this neighborhood. And if you want to see the area for yourself, you can take a self-guided tour on historylink.tours. Many LGBTQ plus folks in the early and mid 20th century, there weren't many places they could go and be themselves. Exploring your identity and meeting up with other people was tricky. So when folks sought out places to go, many roads led to Pioneer Square. And many of those roads led to bars and taverns. It was an eclectic group of establishments with names like the 611 Tavern, um, the Golden Horseshoe, the Double Header, the Silver Slipper, and the Casino, also known as Madame Peabody's School of Dance. One of the things about learning about this LGBTQ plus history of Pioneer Square is that many places are no longer here. Sometimes there might be one architectural element that still remains. Sometimes you can see the outline of a sign that used to hang above a bar, but many of them are gone. They have been torn down. They have been gentrified. And so part of this story about learning about this history is looking past things that are there now to try to see the shadows that existed in a space, right? To try to hear the voices from long, long ago, to hear the disco music that might have been thumping in a speaker somewhere, or maybe hear a beer bottle clink on a bar. Like you have to try to hear those sounds, find those elements, uh, see those people. All these things are here in the city, just hidden, but waiting for us to find and discover. So again, cities have their histories, right? What you see today may not have been what was there yesterday. So today we see a tattoo shop where people come to get stamped with ink. But this was also a place that stamped itself in the hearts and minds of many people who came here. Lesbians who came to the Silver Slipper, right here. One of the city's earliest lesbian bars, right? 
Stories say that in order to reach the Silver Slipper, you had to walk up this dreary stair staircase to get inside, and it was on the second floor. We think that this was actually the second floor. This space here would have been where the bar was. And so here you would walk up that dreary staircase and maybe you'd sit down and have a beer and get to listen to the Lesby Friends string band, right? But this was a place where women could come, women could, con could congregate, could be together, right? Where as opposed to bars that were mostly male dominated, here was a female dominated space. One way to learn more about what it was like inside the Silver Slipper is to hear from someone who was there. In the mid-1990s, the Northwest Lesbian and Gay History Museum Project began collecting oral histories from LGBTQ folks. One person who recorded an oral history was Jan Denali, and she talked about visiting the Silver Slipper. Unfortunately, we're not able to use the recording, but we do have a transcript which will be read by Greta Jane. I look at my 20s and the amount of stuff that was in one period of time is just phenomenal. It's not that way now, somehow. Uh, the early 70s was an exciting time for lesbian women, lesbian progressive culture. There was so much going on. And I was way into music and started playing again. I'm a fiddler, so I was going a lot of old-timey stuff, but I also did some jazz and rock and roll. <sighs> In the 70s, Lesby Friends was my string band. Now we're playing under the name Hot Flash. <laughs> we played at the Silver Slipper. That was fun. Uh, we were glad it was there and everything, but it was really dark and dreary upstairs. What was happening then? You know, this was the mid-70s. Uh, is the coming together of real old-style lesbianism and new-style lesbianism. That's how I experienced it there. The old-style, pre-Stonewall kind of stuff. And certainly pre-second-wave feminism which was when I came in riding on that glorious wave. I don't know what they would say, because you see these movies where women from that period are talking and it's not all dark, dreary, but we came in having benefited from their lives and getting to be less oppressed than they were. We came in with an expectation of outness and joyousness and I'm in your face and I don't care kind of deal, which was not possible in the era before us. So the Silver Slipper was definitely the old style. The bars and taverns in Pioneer Square became gathering places for LGBTQ plus folks. And sometimes when people gather, they like to dance. Now, this only makes sense. Dance is more than a form of self-expression, it's also a form of community expression. The waltz, the lindy hop, the tango, and even the bump were ways communities revealed who they were and what they could do. All of those dances and many other ones involved dancing with a partner. 
But in the mid 20th century, LGBTQ plus folks in Seattle weren't allowed to find expression through partner dancing because same-sex dancing was illegal. Coming up on this sign here that marks the casino, you see that it says dancing. That's because here was a place down in the basement where people gathered at the casino to dance. It was at the time like the only place where same-sex dancing was permitted. Permitted after people paid off the cops to allow it to happen. But this is a place where you could dance with someone of the same sex here, down in the basement of this place, the casino. Now, what happened inside places like Madame Peabody's School of Dance was complicated. When people went there, they brought along their attitudes and beliefs about gender and sexuality. Luckily, we can get a peek into how one person experienced this complex social environment through another oral history. This one from Lauren Largo. Now, one thing to know is that Lauren Largo is a pseudonym which may suggest that the person was still uncomfortable talking about such loaded issues decades after they occurred. Lauren's words will be read by Greta Jane. The first place I ever went was Mrs. Peabody's Dancing Club. Now that was an experience. That was the first time I had ever seen women cross-dressing. I didn't have real impressions of what to expect. I had read these slick romances where women were upper middle class. Suddenly, I'm pressed into this milieu. Lots of cross-dressing women, lots of violence, all kinds of stuff. And I thought, this isn't me. This is not what I'm in association with. I wasn't indignant or morally outraged. I was just surprised. And I stepped back a little bit. I received severe censure for the fact that I didn't want to be one thing or the other. Even before the feminist movement, I had this perception that I didn't like role-playing gender roles. I didn't want to take on a gender role. And that was a big no-no. <laughs> I can remember nasty remarks about someone being a fembi and then everyone would snort and giggle like this was something reprehensible. I never quite understood it. And that particular group of people, it would have been very hard to fit in as a person who didn't take a gender role. I couldn't fit in. I was roundly criticized, so the association I had, I had to make around the edges of the group with people that I met through other friends or political groups. You pick your friends one by one and hope that they all get along. <laughs> but how did the police payoff scheme work? In truth, it was complicated. In Seattle, there was a licensing system for cabarets and bars, and if there was a perceived violation of the morality code, the police could recommend a license be revoked. Without a license, Bar owners couldn't keep their businesses open, and they couldn't make money. So, 
police leveraged their power and pressured bar owners to pay them to ensure the businesses stayed open. Police could also harass patrons and question them about their employment, which placed those patrons at great risk. The whole system took advantage of people whose existence was already under threat. And it continued until a group of bar owners, LGBTQ plus bar owners, challenged the cops. I didn't mind the $35 a month, but when they got to 4,400 a year, I think it was then I began to get a little mad. That was 10 years later. And they bawled me out because I wasn't paying on the first of the month. Sometimes it would be the seventh. There was a new sergeant in charge of this. And if I didn't start paying on the first, I was in a lot of trouble. And he was quite mad about different things. And he would go on and smoke in my place. Cigar smoke like a gangster. And I told him, well, I've just made up my mind. I'm not going to pay you anyway. So you're not happy with the way things are going. Oh, and he was like going up for more. He was raising the price. And I said, I am not going to pay you off. And he just laughed and he says, well, you're out of business. You better pack your suitcases. You're gone. And I said, well, you mean we're declaring war? And he says, yes. Well, if you paid off, they didn't enforce those laws very much. Like you're not supposed to stand and drink. You're not supposed to, you know, be by the bar or walk with a beer. If you're drinking at the bar and you wanted to go sit with friends of yours at the table, the bartender or whoever worked the floor had to carry the beer. But if you paid them off and things like that, they didn't enforce those kind of rules. So paying them off, you did gain a little. But when I quit paying them and before they found out that I was going after their rear ends, they'd come in and if a guy or a girl had one cheek on the stool, they'd kick the stool and say, put both of them on there. And that's when I got the newspapers after them. There weren't a lot of places where same-sex dancing could happen. One place was the casino, Madame Peabody's School of Dance, and another was here at the Golden Horseshoe. So Gordon, Golden Horseshoe was a place where they had drag acts that changed every two weeks, right? So imagine being here in the 60s, 70s, and seeing a drag act, right? And knowing that you could come back in a couple weeks and there'd be a new performer. I mean, like, here we are. Think about how popular these days RuPaul's Drag Race is, right? Could some of those people who were performing here at the Golden Horseshoe be on RuPaul's? Maybe. Maybe they could be on Drag Race. Who knows? But this was one of those places where people also gathered here in this neighborhood. One of the places where people could dance. Do you remember like the first few times you came to Pioneer Square after you moved here? Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, I used to go to the J&M and a few bars and uh, was into the local music scene and uh, just uh, enjoyed the wonder of Pioneer Square. Now, just a couple blocks up the road from us yes. is a bar that was called the Double Header. Yeah, you ever been to the doubleheader? Well, of course I have. <laughs> what do you mean, of course you have? <laughs> what, uh, what do you recall about the doubleheader? Well, you know, I had started a business and uh, being a little bit 
different myself. Uh, we went there with my very first employee and uh, saw this wonderful band uh, playing and there was uh, a very eclectic group of people dancing and enjoying life. During the heyday of LGBTQ plus bars in Pioneer Square, same-sex couples finally got the right to dance. And dance they did. But in the early 70s, a new dance craze swept the country. Disco. The trouble was, there wasn't a disco in Seattle where you could do the hustle or dance the freak. But that all changed when the city's first discotheque opened. And it was called Shelly's Leg. We all probably remember those disco days, don't we? Those early nights dancing to the village people in Donna Summer. Well, if you lived in Seattle, you didn't have a place to do that until this joint opened up right here at 77 South Main. This is home of Shelly's Leg, Seattle's first disco. How did it get that name? Well, a Florida transplant named Shelly Bowman showed up in the city. She made some friends and she attended a Bastille Day parade here in Pioneer Square. The parade happened to have as part of uh, the cars, vehicles running in the parade, a cannon, a confetti cannon that was supposed to shoot out confetti but somehow liquid got into the cannon, the confetti congealed into a ball, and when the cannon exploded, it hit Shelly Bowman in the leg. Hit her in the leg, knocked her to the ground in the street. She was taken to the hospital near death's door, and they had to remove her leg. Shelly sued the city and other entities and wound up winning $333,000. She donated 20,000, I shouldn't say donated, lent, gave $20,000 to two queer friends, and they opened Shelly's Leg. Once again, an oral history can give us an idea of what a place was like. This time, we get a look inside Shelly's Leg through an oral history from Joe McGonigal, co-owner of the disco. And now, Thanks to our voice actor, Michael Magpie Luella, we have a chance to hear what Joe McGonigal had to say about Shelley's leg. All of the old drugged out hippies all got jobs and we went down there and we worked our little asses off. I don't even remember the year we opened it up. It was 73 maybe, 72, around there sometime. And from the day it opened up, it went absolutely apeshit. Seattle had never had a disc jockey. All you had was records on the jukebox. The bar was decorated. I have never seen a bar as pretty as Shelley's leg was. You'd walk into the door and there was a long, long hallway from here to maybe the building across the way. And then you walked into the bar up the stairs. Right here was a balcony and then a pool table and then another little sidebar. You go out to your left and there was a whole bar there. Just inside the side door was a hat check stand. There was the dance floor, and then in this corner was the disc jockey booth. He was looking down at everything. It was multicolored plexiglass and lights. It was, <clears throat> Jesus Christ, it was a drag queen's delight. It was unbelievable, unbelievable. 
And of course, all the old brick. It was a beautiful, beautiful barn. Of course, sometimes when you're in a beautiful bar, you happen to see beautiful people. And that's what happened to former city council member Tom Rasmussen, who visited Shelley's Lake as a young person. Here's Tom telling us what he saw in his own words. I did go to Shelley's Lake, which was, yes. of course, fabulous. One of the best early discos uh, ever in Seattle. And I was still living in Yakima, but I saw these really big, really glamorous women there. I thought, these are really beautiful women here. So glamorous. I didn't realize these are men in drag at the time. Oh. No, they would walk in and go, wow, look at these glamorous people. <laughs> we don't have anyone like that in Yakima. But, you know, it can be so wild down here in Pioneer Square, right? Noise, activity, people, sirens, right? Just congestion, just like a city, just like, oh, just all bound up together in all its activities, right? And all its life. But I hear from people that in the 60s and 70s and 80s, when they used to come down here and go to bars and come to a restaurant, that in a way it was just kind of like this place where you went and just where you went in the evening time and people didn't feel unsafe. People felt protected, you know? It might've been what people, you know, this area used to be Skid Row, right? So it might've been to what some people might today call a little sketchy, but the people who have told me about it said they never felt unsafe here, right? So imagine this neighborhood now, which is sort of chaotic and sometimes has a reputation of a place you don't want to go, but that was the place you had to go to order to find the people that you wanted to be with. If you want to dive deeper into what it was like to boogie down at Shelley's Leg, or you want to know more about what it looked like inside the doubleheader, then why don't you take a self-guided tour at historylink.tours, where you can find out more. Until then, I'll see you soon as we continue more of this history with Square One. I'm glad you stuck around because Square One has an additional audio podcast which features a fantastic interview with Gil Gordon. Now, I call him Go-Go Gil because in the 1970s in Pioneer Square, Gil was an award-winning Go-Go dancer. So, Go-Go, check it out <laughs> on the History Link 
Squareone.org homepage or with other Square One episodes on your favorite podcast provider.